Welcome into All In with Adam, episode two. I am so excited for this one, guys. Before we get into this, you know, I wanted to to express the gratitude that I felt from the receptiveness that you guys showed me on episode one. You know, this is ultimately going to be a philosophical podcast with um, some other topics and other, you know, things that I'm going to get into. But I came out swinging the philosophical bat pretty heavy, and in my eyes, it was a bit risky to launch a new podcast, a new platform, uh, with a story that was basically a mushroom trip tied into some religious context, and I know that was a, that's a stretch for a lot of people who aren't in that world, right? And so for all of the people that, that watched that podcast, that entertained this um, premise or this philosophy that very likely contrasted with whatever you happen to believe about the world. Uh, I'm impressed by you guys the most. The amount of Christians in the comment section who had the capacity to suspend their own philosophical beliefs to entertain mine and have a productive discussion, that is deeply impressive to me. So you guys rock. And to everybody else, to the fellow psychonauts who showed up, um, to those who have been um, curious about psychedelics and their their relationships to humanity and how they can help us grow and learn, um, man, I'm thankful for you guys too. It was just an overwhelmingly awesome response uh, that I got from that first episode. And so I'm feeling really, really grateful and feeling really charged up for this project and this podcast. And uh, yeah, so I'm just so thankful for all of you guys. And of course, there were a couple crazies in the comments. You can go read <laughs> some of their comments, but those are fun too. And of course, those sentiments were to be expected. But um, either way, I just wanted to express a, a lot of gratitude and tell you all how thankful I am for how well that was received. And there are some awesome discussions taking place in the comments section of that video of episode one. So uh, if you haven't seen that one, go check it out. I thought it was a, a really, really successful launch from the entrepreneurial standpoint. And I'm just grateful for all of you guys to, uh, to give me that hour of time, and I'm hopeful that you'll give me another hour today. So what I have to share with you today in this episode is somewhat of a psychology-themed philosophy that I have about the world, and I've been kicking the tires on this idea for at least a year now, but maybe a little bit longer, and the more that I entertain and toy around with this philosophical concept, uh, the more places I begin to see it take shape in the world. So what I'd like to break down for you today is a spectrum, and this spectrum is between the artist and the tactician, and we're going to define what those two ends of the spectrum are, um, and I just want to clarify right off the bat, when I use the word tactician, I'll also substitute that for the word strategist, and I don't mean to imply um, tactical shit. I'm not necessarily talking about military and police, though those are definitely tactical people. Um, we'll get into some of those definitions a little bit later, but effectively, this is a a spectrum between uh, two different types of people or two different ways of looking at the world, two different thinking styles. And so once we break down this spectrum, once we identify the artist and identify the tactician, I'd like to give you some pros and cons um, as I see them on either end of this spectrum. And to be honest, I see myself relatively in the middle of this spectrum. And so at the end of this podcast, I'm gonna take the Myers-Briggs test. Now the Myers-Briggs test is effectively a psychological profiler. Um, it's a test that a lot of large corporations will give to their employees before they place them at a position within a company. And they do that because the Myers-Briggs test is like creepily accurate sometimes. Uh, of course, I'm well aware <clears throat> that you can't take an online test and put somebody's entire identity within a box, so that's not gonna be my intention, but I think it's gonna be a great way for you to get to know me and also help 
explain how I find myself in the middle of this spectrum between the artist and the tactician. So with that said, this is tactical artistry. Let's get into it. So the first place that this idea was introduced to me um, actually started with hippies because in the music industry, hippies were always presented to me with an overwhelmingly positive connotation, right? When I thought about hippies all growing up, I thought about, I mean, peace-loving, anti-war, creative people who just wanted nothing but the best for the world, and that movement was deeply glorified within the music industry. And of course, that's tied directly into um, Hendrix and the Woodstock era, um, even back to the Beatles and all the way up to Pink Floyd and Zeppelin, and that whole era of this peace-loving, creative, anti-war group of people, you know, that was always painted in this um, just unbelievably positive way. That's how I perceived them because that's what the music industry told me that movement was. But as this concept was first introduced to me, it was made clear that half of the country at the time, half of the population of the United States, absolutely fucking hated hippies. And that struck me as really weird. I had never heard that anybody had anything bad to say about the hippie movement. And so there's this big contrast here. If you think about the fact that the country was split down the middle in American culture, not but 50, 60, 70 years ago, um, what was that split all about? What was there to hate about hippies? And so as I began to understand, you know, you have to look at the working class people, your blue collar workers. So these would be your plumbers, electricians, your factory workers, uh, insurance salesmen, doctors, lawyers, effectively everybody in a more uh, orthodox career that is sort of outside of the arts, outside of uh, creative contribution, and more on the problem-solving side of the spectrum. So this other half of the population, you have to remember, they were not very far removed from the Great Depression. And so as this more orthodox group of people um, were trying to build lives for themselves, they were building roads, building bridges, paying taxes, starting companies. They were uh, providing sustainable income for people as their businesses grew. They were doing all of the stuff that they would have defined as the American dream. They were building family units, creating stability, and trying to separate themselves uh, from some of the scarcity that they had very likely seen. And while all of that was taking place, the other half of the country, this hippie movement, they were doing drugs in a field. And that contrast made so much sense to me. I can understand both sides of that argument. I think if I go back and look at the 60s and the 70s, I, I, it's easy for me to imagine that I could have been a hippie. But as I get older, it becomes a little bit more obvious why a movement like that might scare you a little bit as a parent, as somebody who had seen the economy collapse not but you know just a few decades earlier, and you wouldn't want your kid to get swept up by the hippie movement. I understand where that fear comes from. Because in the eyes of the blue-collar worker or just somebody who's in a non-creative, more orthodox job or career path, they would probably perceive that hippie movement as dangerous, that it leads to something that, that isn't gonna give you any stability in your life, that at a certain point when you're done doing drugs in the field and talking about all this uh, lovey-dovey anti-war stuff, that one day you're gonna have to join the workforce and you're gonna be 10 or 20 years behind the rest of us. 
And you can agree with that or disagree with that, but this was undoubtedly a cultural and a societal split that took place in you know, relatively early American history, at least compared to, um, to me and when I was born. I wasn't alive for any of this, but as this was explained to me, it became very easy to see both sides of that coin. Uh, so I just wanna open up by expressing that this was one very early example, and when it was presented to me, it made a lot of sense that there was a spectrum here. The artist versus the tactician or the strategist. So that's your hippie and your blue collar worker. Now, another great example that I can give you uh, in a little bit more of a modern context would be someone who pursues, let's say a career in you know, being a doctor or being a lawyer versus somebody who pursues a career in the arts, like a musician or an actor. Now these are two very different ways to approach your life. And you know, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more, but just think about the strategy that is required for somebody who wants to be a doctor or be a lawyer. There is a very set path in place. If you follow these rules and you don't do anything to fuck it up, it's a relatively foolproof way to approach your career. The outcomes become very predictable in a lot of ways, and stability is just easier to attain. But for a musician, for an artist, an actor, a painter, or anybody that, that wants to have a career in the arts, you forfeit a lot of those luxuries. So in many ways, I can still see some modern career paths being uh, that same sort of contrast, two different ways um, to set up your life, two different ways to look at the world. And we can continue with these analogies. There are so many of them. Uh, but in the career realm, or in at least like the personality realm, uh, think about somebody who wants to be a YouTuber, a content creator. That is the arts. You are gambling in so many ways. And you, again, forfeit a lot of the stability that would come with a more orthodox job, like being a service provider, for example, plumber, electrician, mechanic, uh, or anything within that category. So from here, what I'd like to do is sort of take a look at the tactician side of the spectrum, take a look at the artist side of the spectrum and give you some pros and cons of both. But before we get that much further in, I want to be abundantly clear that while this is a spectrum that can appear quite divisive and quite extreme on either end of the spectrum, you know, there are so many people that operate in the middle or just slightly to one side or slightly to the other. So if we think of the artist on the extreme left and the tactician on the extreme right, you don't have to live on either side of that spectrum. There's so many people that are all throughout the middle of this, and I just think it's really important to keep that in mind because while I might have to talk in extremes um, to set up this premise or this philosophy for you, it doesn't always happen that way. There's a ton of people that are all throughout this spectrum, so please bear that in mind um, as I go through some of these next few examples. So first, let's talk about the pros of being a tactician or or I might also swap that word out for strategist a lot in this podcast because they're very similar. You know, predictable outcomes would be the first advantage to being a tactical or a strategic person. And a great example of this would be college. So again, we can take this doctor-lawyer analogy. And, you know, if you wanted to have that as a career, there are very strategic tactical steps that are laid out in front of you. And if you follow those rules, the rule book as it is presented to you, there's not a lot that could go wrong. The outcomes here are very predictable. As long as you are capable of passing the test, let's say in a college setting, of you know getting all of those credentials and uh, achieving these markers that you have set out for you, 
I don't know what could necessarily go wrong uh, if that was the strategy that you employed over your life. You will eventually be a doctor, barring some uh, crazy circumstance that could happen. So tacticians and strategists enjoy much more predictable outcomes in life, and this leads to a greater sense of stability. And I think if you were a tactical, uh, strategy-oriented person, you would certainly argue that the greater stability in your life is a huge pro for you, right? That's not a con at all. And I think everybody on any size of the spectrum could undoubtedly uh, enjoy more stability. I don't think very many people have an attraction um, to chaos or to instability in their in their life, whether that be in their family life or in in their career, in their finances, everybody seems to universally uh, want some version of stability. I think that's natural for us. And so this goes into the pro category for the strategist. Uh, the, the more complex, the more detailed of a strategy that you have over your life, the more likely it is that you're gonna have predictable outcomes and therefore more stability. And this is not a luxury that a lot of artists have. Artists tend to forfeit a lot of stability and a lot of predictable outcomes um, for their own reasons. And we'll get into those later, but um, at this point, I just wanna make it clear that I think predictable outcomes and therefore more stability is something that tacticians tend to enjoy. And with all of that stability and with the predictable outcomes comes more safety, right? I think it is objectively safer to be a more strategic person. If you have a plan, if you have a strategy and you follow it to a T, you know, again, like we said, there's very few things that could go wrong if you're just gonna adhere to the strategy that you have set out over your own life. Um, so I think we have to give this one to the tacticians as well, because as people oftentimes feel that calling to get married, to have children, to settle down, safety becomes more and more valuable as you get older. You're less willing uh, to take some risks, and there is definitely some reduced risk in being a strategy-oriented person. And once again, that that's not a luxury that artists, musicians, actors, anybody in the arts, um, it's nowhere near as safe of a career path. So safety, predictable outcomes, and reduced risk, these all go uh, in the pro category for a tactical or a more strategic person. Tacticians also tend to be a little better in the context of self-discipline, because if you have a strategy for your life and you set that strategy up, you have to follow the rules. You have to adhere to the strategy that you set up or else you're a pretty shitty strategist, right? And I think self-discipline is one of those like virtuous qualities that everybody could use a little bit more of. But if you're talking to someone who is very strategy-oriented in their career and in their personal life, you'll find that self-discipline inherently comes a little bit easier for them. I think this is something that artists most definitely struggle with, and we'll get into that a little bit later in this episode. Uh, but i just like to make it very clear that I think it is incumbent upon the strategist or the, the person who operates with a lot more um, tactical approaches in their life, it's incumbent upon them to be self-disciplined. It comes easier to them because it's part of executing the strategy that they have. Now, before we move over to the artist, let's talk about some of the cons of being a more tactical person. Uh, I also wanna be clear that I think these cons or the downsides of being a more tactical strategy-oriented person um, are only going to sound like cons to the artist. To someone who has a strategy over their life um, and they're a little bit less interested in creative contribution, these don't sound like cons at all. They're cons to the artist, so I suppose in many ways at this point I am talking to the artist, um, 
But yeah, here's some things that I personally might not like um, about the lifestyle or the philosophical approach that a tactical person might take on. One would be less creative contribution, right? I know that makes a lot of artists cringe, but when you're talking about someone who is a tactical, strategy-oriented individual, they're not interested in the arts that much. So creative contribution is not at the top of their list. What they would rather do is solve your problem. And if it's not your problem they're solving, they'll be solving their own problem. That, to them, is their contribution to the world. And contributing art or contributing um, creative concepts, creative works, that is just far less appealing to them. And again, I know the artist is cringing when they hear something like this, but uh, when we get into these more industrious career paths, you don't really want your plumber to be that creative. You need a problem solved, um, and in that scenario, you definitely want someone who is more tactical. You don't need creativity in a scenario like that. You need a problem solver. And so the lack of creative contribution that a tactical person you know, might have that doesn't really matter to them. They're solving problems, and that is what they value. That is what they want to contribute to the world. But I suppose we can call this a con, because as someone who is naturally quite a bit of an artist, I couldn't imagine a world where I'm not offering a creative contribution. It's a very valuable thing to me. So um, I put that one as kind of a con, I guess. I think people who don't creatively contribute anything to the world, um, I don't want to live that way. So we can call that a con, I suppose, but there's a lot of context that just depends on the person that you're talking to, and genuinely, what do they value? Now, I think another theme that we're going to call a con uh, for the tactician would be that somebody in that position, a non-artist, a non-creative person, I think those people tend to struggle with empathy a little bit more. I think they tend to be a little bit uh, less emotional when it comes to their work, when it comes to their, their personal life, their family life, their relationships. And of course, it's not to say that they are void of emotion. You'd have to be a psychopath of some kind to fall into that category. But I think when it comes to empathizing with other people, artists are inherently better at doing that. I think a tactical, strategic person, uh, again, is interested in solving your problem, but not necessarily meeting you on an emotional level. So they tend to be relatively speaking, um, less compassionate. They're not void of compassion, but they are definitely less compassionate and less empathetic um, than somebody who would be more on the artistic side of the spectrum. So we can call that a con um, for the tactician. And I think one of the last cons that we would have to lay out for a tactical strategy-oriented person is that in many ways, people who are outside of the arts I think sometimes you can set yourself up for less peaks and valleys in your life. I think someone who operates from a more emotional, creative, artistic point of view, I think they're going to have greater up and downs in life. And I think in so many ways, uh, someone who is playing by the rule book in their career and in their personal life, strategy and tactics seems to be um, their preferred method of engaging with the world. I think a lot of times those people might experience less emotional peaks and valleys. And I think there's an argument to be made that experiencing those peaks and valleys, very high highs and very low lows, isn't that kind of what the fuck life is all about, right? I'm somebody who, you know, the artist in me has, has undoubtedly given me some very high highs and very low lows. And of course, there's that common 
philosophical premise that the highs are only high if you've been low and the lows only suck if you've been high. And if you were to compress that emotional spectrum a bit um, by sort of staying out of artistry and out of creativity and taking on all of those emotional risks that come with being in those fields, I think you can make an argument that you are uh, living a less exciting life. A tactician might totally disagree with you, but I think a lot of artists will hear that and resonate with it in that you know, being a, um, a deeply emotional, empathetic, compassionate, artistic, creative person, uh, it, comes with, it comes with these brutal ups and downs at times. But I understand that in so many ways, that's what living life is. Life is not about finding um, supreme stability and maintaining that until you die. That sounds supremely fucking boring to me. I'm not interested in a life like that. I want the super high highs and the super low lows, and I think that's something that um, artists tend to inherently enjoy. And a tactician might not see value in that, but I do, I do. I want the big, the big wins, and I'm not scared of the big losses, and I think this is one thing that could be kind of a con for a tactical, strategy-oriented person. And now let's slide on over to the artist. And the artist, these are people that I know very, very well. Having been in the music industry and interacting with so many musicians over the past decade or so, and really longer than that, because all of my friends in high school, everybody I knew growing up was, was an artist, was a musician. Those were my people. I know this group of people a little bit better than I would say I know the tactical side, right? I know a hell of a lot more musicians than I know uh, police officers or lawyers or doctors or military people. And while I do know plenty of people on that side, on that strategy-oriented side of this personality spectrum... I think I know artists a lot better, so I'm excited for this part because I can speak to artists a little bit more directly. I just interact with them that much more. Now, pros of the artist, and I would agree with a lot of these, you know, higher creative contribution. For me, creating something that contributes something to the world for other people's personal enjoyment, even if it doesn't necessarily solve a problem, that still has a super high appeal to me. That's the artist in me. I could not imagine um, a week or a month where I create nothing. I could not possibly imagine that. Creativity feels incumbent upon me as a human being. It's just a part of who I am, and I think all artists can relate to that. There is a, um, a natural magnetism towards creative contribution, and I love that. I don't want to live in a world without creative contribution. I don't want to live a life where I'm unable to create anything, so I'm going to put that one in the pro category for the artist. All of the cultural creative contributions, whether that be um, music or film or different types of media or art of any kind, that all comes from the artist. And hopefully everybody can see some value in that. And another huge pro that we would have to give to the artist is something that I already addressed in part, and that would be the wider emotional spectrum, the high highs, the low lows, um, and everything in between. And I think if you were to assess the human experience from start to finish, I think one of the most beautiful things about living is that we're able to experience these fucking wild extremes, oftentimes on an emotional level. I think artists love deeper. I think artists are more sensitive and therefore experience more pain, more suffering in their life. But again, 
I have an attraction to that roller coaster ride, right? I want to live life that way, a life that is full of major wins and major losses and feel the entire spectrum up and down. So I just want to give uh, credit to my artists, to my high empathy, um, emotionally driven human beings. I hear you, man. And once again, I think that's what fucking living is all about, experiencing that entire spectrum. And I have no desire to compress that spectrum uh, of these emotional, up and down. So we're going to give that one to the artist. I also think that the higher level of empathy and the greater degree of compassion with which artists operate could potentially give them a greater connectivity to the people around them. I think artists are are much better at relating to other people on an emotional level. And that human connectivity uh, is something really, really special. If you think about empathy and compassion, those two specific traits They are very, very human. They're not exclusive to humans, but it's definitely a big dividing factor between us and the rest of the animal kingdom, right? And so a good example of this would be if you had a breakup or some emotionally difficult situation. It's very likely that you would call your more empathetic, your more compassionate friend, that could be your mom, for example. You would call that person uh, in order to connect Emotionally, what you don't need in that situation is a problem solver. A tactical strategy oriented person is probably not who you want when you're going through something emotionally difficult. You want emotional connection and I think artists and creative types are inherently better at doing this. And a final pro that we have to give to the artist, this is a really big one, is that they are hyper specialized. Because they are so um, passion driven, it becomes very easy for the artist to be consumed by the thing that they are passionate about. And this leads to, in many cases, uh, hyper-specialists in their craft, in their field, and they tend to be supremely talented in a very narrow category. And the thing is, I love that about the world. I love hyper-specialized people. I love somebody who picked uh, a very niche thing to get good at, and they just became the best in the fucking world. I love this in drummers. I love this in all musicians, in all artists. When they picked something that they love to do, they allowed that passion to completely consume them and they become a hyper-specialized talent. I want a world full of those people because being more of a jack-of-all-trades is somewhat less appealing to me and that's kind of the artist in me that feels that way. So hyper-specialized talents and skill sets, we're going to give that one to the artist. But of course we have to talk about the cons of being an artist and there are many. And the reason this is so easy for me to talk about is because I experienced them. You know, just a little bit of a personal background here, I feel like I was born uh, very much um, a purist when it comes to the arts, when it comes to creativity. I was born very much on that side of the spectrum. And as I've gotten older, I've undoubtedly balanced that out and come come far more to the tactical strategy-oriented side of that spectrum. And again, the Myers-Briggs test that I'm gonna be taking at the end of this podcast will help clarify um, you know, sort of why I fall in the middle of this spectrum, but I was born much more of an artist. And so when it comes to the cons of being that type of person, having that type of uh, approach to problem solving or looking at the world through the prism of artistry and creative contribution, I experienced a lot of shit that sucks. And so this one is very easy for me to talk about because I have lived this stuff. So to talk about some cons of being on that artistic side of the spectrum, I think we need to talk about the fuel source of the artists. Artists are very oftentimes motivated by inspiration. But the problem is, 
inspiration is finite. It is not always controllable. It's relatively impossible to decide to be inspired. It's simply something that the universe gives you sometimes, and sometimes it fucking doesn't. And I'm a person who is very oftentimes led by passion and inspiration. The start of this podcast was very much rooted in an inspiring event, right? I just kind of got lit on fire by this one experience and it made me want to do something. So this project in itself is passion driven. But there is a problem with that. And the problem that I see with that is that if you have any type of a family unit or a structure of other people who depend on you for, I guess financial contribution would be the easiest way to look at this, you are inherently less reliable when your work is fueled by a resource that you cannot control. And so if your willingness to work every day is dependent on how you feel, how inspired you feel, how motivated you feel to be creative, there is an inherent danger there. Because what happens when you no longer have that inspiration? I see this happening in relationships as well. You know, when you begin a brand new relationship with somebody, an intimate relationship, there's very likely gonna be a higher level of intimacy, a higher level of connectivity. And I think that's beautiful. I've experienced that before, and that you can call it infatuation, but a lot of that fire that happens in early relationships is just a really special thing. As anybody will tell you who's been in a very long relationship, let's say three, four, five years or anything past that, They'll tell you that that infatuation, that fire, all those magic lovey butterflies, that that shit eventually goes away. Not entirely, but it's not the same. It's not the same as it was in year one or year two. The first date doesn't even feel like the 10th date. And the 20th date doesn't feel anything like year five. And so once that fire doesn't burn as hot as it used to, whether it's in your career or in a, in a romantic relationship, once that fire sort of dies down, the artist, the creative person who is predominantly fueled by that passionate fire, they're going to have a hard time here because now you're faced with the reality that you just have to do some shit that you don't want to do, especially, again, if you're in a family unit or some sort of social environment where other people depend on you. And I worry for artists sometimes that if they have no strategy or tactics that they're employing in their life and their fuel source for their work and their career is rooted in this you know, universal inspiration that just seems to come to them. Well, what happens when that disappears? You are gonna have to figure some shit out. And so I worry sometimes for the artist that this is a, uh, in the the long term, somewhat of an unsustainable way to get through a day, to approach a career. Because in my experience, everything that I have ever been passionate about, it doesn't always stay that way. It doesn't work that way. It certainly doesn't work that way with drums for me. It doesn't work that way in my relationship. Um, everything seems to stabilize. And these fires just burn less hot as time goes on. It's, it's part of our psychology, I think. And so artists are not so good at planning for that to happen. And if you're an artist, speaking directly to you, I would say, you know, what's the plan if the fire ever goes out? And keep in mind, I'm not trying to stomp your fire out. If you're on fire and passionate uh, about what it is that you have doing within your artistry or have going on within your artistry, dude, keep that going. I hope that fire burns bright for a hundred years until the day you die. But in my experience, 
it won't. And, uh, and when, when that fire begins to dim, I, I want you to have some sort of strategy to deal with that. Now, another thing that the artist or the more creative types can struggle with is executing tasks, right? And so we can take a very, a very easy task here. Uh, like, let's say working out. Working out, at least for me, is not deeply gratifying initially, right? I don't always look forward to the workout in itself. However, there is something on the other side of that workout that I want. So it's an unenjoyable task, but it has an outcome that I actually do desire. And so I have a willingness to do the uncomfortable task in order to get uh, the desired outcome, the cool shit that's on the other side of that hard work. And I say, exercise, um, not to imply that there are musicians who don't exercise, there's tons of them that do, but I think many pure artists tend to have an aversion to things like this, where there's a difficult task, something you want on the other side, but if the task itself isn't enjoyable, artists can be a little bit averse to this sometimes, because they're a lot better at living in the moment. And so this idea of doing something that is supremely unenjoyable, and at least, you know, instantly not that gratifying, that's a little bit less appealing to the artists. Um, and exercise might not be the best analogy for this, but there's a number of other ways where you could see this sort of happening. An artist wants to be um, inspired at all times, I suppose. And another good example of this, I think probably a better one, would be someone who does a creative job all day but then how do they feel when they have to sit at the computer at the end of the day and answer emails or run the numbers to balance the books, uh, the finances for the business side? Artists tend to be better at the art stuff and the monotonous tasks, the required tasks that come with running like um, an artistic business, that's a lot harder for an artist. And the more of an artist you are, the more of a purist you are on that creative side of the spectrum, the more difficult it is to do um, unenjoyable tasks. And that's a con for the artist, in my opinion, because there's a whole lot of stuff that I'm sure artists would want that are just on the other side of something difficult, if only they could do the difficult thing. And let me be very clear, there are numerous anecdotal examples of this happening. I think I'm one of them. There are artistic entrepreneurs um, all over the place. So this doesn't apply to everyone, but if we go to that extreme side of the spectrum and talk about the, the genuine purist artist, I think they do struggle uh, with executing tasks that don't have an immediate value to them because that fuel source of passion and inspiration and motivation, it doesn't really fuel that kind of stuff. And of course, just circling back, another con of the artist would be something we've already talked about here, um, and it is less predictable outcomes and ultimately less stability. Artists always deal with this. And even if you went a more traditional route to being something like a musician, just so I can speak about a realm that I know a little bit better, you know, going to music school, writing an album, producing music of any kind, trying to be an actor, all of these things don't come with a high level of stability. You can't predict what's gonna happen in the arts. You can't predict if the world will even enjoy your creative contribution. And this is a risk that artists are very often willing to take. But if it doesn't go how you wanted it to go or how you planned for it to go, you end up just being mad at the universe about that. And I think that saddens me for a lot of artists because it's a risk that you have to take. And no one on earth can guarantee you that your creative contribution, that your art, that your 
creative career in the arts. No one can guarantee you success here, and it comes with a risk uh, that scares me for a lot of artists sometimes. I hope you know if you're going into the arts in any capacity, and that's, that's the thing that you're chasing, this is risky. It is inherently risky because the world doesn't owe you some sort of fundamental appreciation for your art. You're taking a risk. And again, that comes with uh, less predictable outcomes and ultimately a little bit less stability in your life. So we're going to have to call that one a con for the artist. Now, this is where this podcast gets a little bit tricky because I would like to explore something that that takes some time. I'm going to ask you to hear me out on this one. Um, If we were to look at studies all of the studies that have been done from the early 50s all the way up until now. There are hundreds of these studies that all point in the exact same direction. And it is that when you have a child who is raised in a two-parent household with a biological father and a biological mother, the studies overwhelmingly predict that every marker for success, every predictor for success that you could have in that child's life goes up astronomically. And I am acutely aware that that comes with a very uncomfortable implication that gay parents are suboptimal. And that is not the message that I have for you today. Because first of all, I'm a believer that any family unit that you have is beautiful. I don't think the universe owes you a set of parents. I don't think it owes you any parents at all. To be totally honest, I think having one parent and especially having two parents, no matter what their sexual preferences or whatever their their gender is, whatever combination you have, whatever family unit you have, if you have one person or two people or five people in your family unit that love you, I think that is absolutely beautiful. I don't think the universe owes you a set of parents. And so if you have sane ones, that's a privilege. If you have ones that love you and they're nurturing, In any capacity, that's a privilege. I just don't think the universe owes you a set of parents. And so whatever set of parents you got, whatever your family unit looks like, gay, straight, polyamorous, I really don't give a shit. I think you're lucky to have whatever it is that you have. And so when we look at these studies that have this this overwhelming implication that a two-parent household, um, even with a biological father and mother, is optimal, once again, I don't intend to imply that that gay parents um, are suboptimal in any capacity. What I take away from those studies is that you have a child that has two deeply contrasting influential figures in their life. One of them being more of a disciplinarian, a tactician, a strategist, someone who is going to impart those beliefs and those philosophies about how to move through life on that child. And in that same household, that child could have another influential figure who is someone who is more artistic, empathetic, emotionally connective, compassionate, nurturing. And that is the value that I take away from all of these studies which overwhelmingly say that a two-parent household is optimal. Now, of course, for the most part, um, this is going to be a straight male and a straight female, but I don't think it has to be at all. I think if you were to have um, you know, two gay men or two gay women who are raising a child, my only hope in that scenario would be that they have somewhat different personalities, that one of them would be the disciplinarian, one of them would be um, the strategic tactician, and the other would be more of a nurturing, empathetic, uh, an emotionally connective person. That's my hope um, for every child in the world, that they can have both of these influences in their life. 
And in a weird way, I'm an anecdote here. You know, I didn't have a traditional family unit. I have no siblings and I was raised by a single mother. But I think uh, one way where I got extremely lucky is that my mother was kind of right down the middle of this spectrum. She was very nurturing, affectionate. Um, she was physically affectionate, emotionally affectionate, verbally affectionate. Um, she fostered creativity. She was everything that you would want a mother to be. But she was also a goddamn savage when it came to running a household. She was a planner. She was a strategist. She kept a tight ship, um, very much in the way that a traditional a traditional father figure might might you know do that. So. In many ways, I feel super lucky that I had, um, you know, only one parent effectively that raised me, but she played the role of a traditional mother, a traditional father very, very well. And I'm so grateful that um, even just from one person, I was able to have both of these influences in my life. I was able to have, um, you know, some strategy and some, some structure in my life while also having all of the you know, nurturing compassion bestowed upon me and affection given to me um, that you would want for a child. So I feel that while I'm an anecdote, I got to experience both of those growing up. So shout out moms, you know what I'm saying? And just in closing to further clarify sort of this idea of gay parents raising children, I think one of the cooler things that nature seems to do um, is that, you know, this idea of opposites attract you know, it's kind of universal. I think for the most part, people end up with people that are not similar to them. And I understand that there's an oxymoron that we're talking about two men who are likely uh, very similar biologically, but I, I'm talking about on a, on a personality level. I think it's very common that whether it's a gay couple, a straight couple, or any, any type of couple at all, that opposites do seem to attract. I think tacticians are attracted to artists a lot of times. And I think artists are attracted to tacticians. And I think that balance is something that nature seems to provide us in many contexts, right? And maybe not in every scenario. You know, maybe you're the type of person who is an artist and you're purely attracted to artists. But I suppose, you know, for what it's worth, uh, if you're still in the dating pool, you know, try dating somebody who's a little bit out of your wheelhouse. I think there's very oftentimes some cool balances that can be struck there. Um, and, can, and it can provide a an environment for you, for your household, and for your family unit, whatever that looks like, um, that has a really cool balance where you can operate on either end of this spectrum, where the artist can learn from the tactician, the tactician can learn from the artist, and of course, if there's a child involved or some other person in your life, people in your life that you can influence, you can balance that influence out because again, I'm a fan of people on both sides of this spectrum and I think in so many ways, we're built for each other. The artist is built to balance the tactician. The tactician is built to balance out the artist and we can learn a lot from each other. Now, here's the last uncomfortable analogy that I'm gonna to present to you uh, in this wheelhouse and that is in politics. Now. I'm just dipping toes in the water here. It is not my intention to share with you any of my political ideologies, um, though I hope to do that down the road in this podcast. I think it's a little early and we have a lot of groundwork to lay before I get there. But I do wanna give you some nonpartisan uh, examples of how I see this spectrum being applied in the realm of American politics. So if we take the ideological left, the Democratic Party, I don't think there's much of an argument um, that this is the empathy party. And you can certainly debate over whether or not their policies and ideologies and vision for the world is truly the most empathetic. There are always debates to be had there. But there's no denying that they appeal 
to more empathetic people, right? They're interested in more social causes, um, and they tend to be hyper-focused on issues that are relatively specific to, you know, emotion in a way. And to be honest, I think we need those people. I think we need them in every context. I think you need that type of influence over a child's life. I think you need those types of friends. Um, and I don't intend to say necessarily that like the Democratic Party is the artistic party because that's a little obscure. You know what? I'm actually quite comfortable with that statement. I think the left is the artistic party and look no further than all of Hollywood, all of the entire music industry, all of the tech industry, which is you know pretty much on the creative side. Um, Ask an artist that you know. Ask the most artistic person you know. I bet you they lean left on a majority of issues. And conversely, ask somebody who's more on the tactical side. Ask somebody in the military. Ask a cop. Ask a firefighter. Um, ask uh, an industrious worker who might have a, a more utilitarian sort of job. It's very likely, at least on paper, that they're going to be more conservative. And of course, there are anecdotes across the board here. There are deeply conservative artists, and there are more industrious, tactical people who would be totally liberal. And there's also all these beautiful blends, like somebody that's fiscally conservative but socially liberal. It's a really common phrase. But um, I think in terms of calling the left the artistic party, I think that's a pretty safe thing to do. And again, look no further than Hollywood and the music industry, uh, the film industry, any of that. All predominantly left almost across the board on every single issue without fail. But they're a party that operates from a higher level of emotion, right? I think Democrats and Republicans could both agree on that. And then if we go to the other side and we look at, at conservatives, in my eyes, conservatives always seem to be far less empathetic in their approaches to solving problems. They seem to be more of tacticians, even if those tactics are um, relatively void of empathy. They're not really interested in that. And this is why you see all of these tactical career paths sort of lean towards the right in a lot of scenarios. These would be your finance people. These would be your cops. This would be a majority of the military. This would be firefighters. And so a lot of people that you can see have these more tactical strategy-oriented careers tend to have more conservative views across the board because they don't operate from a place from empathy. They are problem solvers. And so they tend to remove emotion from a lot of their decision-making um, and just look at how can we solve the problem, even if the presentation of their solution appears quite cold to some people. Now, of course, the way that a political union in a two-party system is supposed to work is that there is a push and a pull, and ultimately, both parties sacrifice their position in part to meet somewhere in the middle so we achieve a balanced outcome. Because I want to be explicitly clear, I have no desire to live in a world where the left makes all of the decisions. And I have no desire to live in a world where the right makes all of the decisions. I think e either of those sides of the spectrum, in extreme forms, are, that's dog shit politics. That is not how I want this country to be run. And so if we use this analogy that the political union between Democrats and Republicans is very much like a marriage, you know, it's supposed to work like a marriage. You have one way of thinking about a problem, I have another, but because we fundamentally have shared values and we ultimately desire similar outcomes, we're both willing to concede just a little bit to meet in the middle and find an outcome that neither of us would define as perfection, but it is a natural balance. That is how 
how a political union is supposed to work. It's just like a marriage. Now, we're seeing this premise disintegrate underneath us in this country. I think that's a nonpartisan statement. I think people from the furthest left and the furthest right would both agree that that's not how things are working right now. And I do have quite a few political theories that I can expand on in future episodes, but that's not what we're doing today. I just wanted to tell you today that there are many, many contexts where I see this spectrum taking place. It ranges from career paths all the way back to, you know, fucking <laughs> fucking hippies and blue collar workers to doctors and lawyers and musicians um, all the way through different parenting styles all the way through politics there are so many contexts where i see this spectrum uh, being a helpful way to look at the world and a last one i'll leave you with would be left brain right brain dominance theory right there are psychological theories i guess they would be biological theories that many people tend to naturally use one side of their brain more than the other. Um, one would be your, your creative emotional side, the other would be the more analytical and logistics sort of side. And, you know, perhaps that theory is totally true because the more I explore this philosophical or psychological complex, um, the more places where I see this happening. And so hopefully, if you're on either side of the spectrum, if you find yourself as an artist and you identify yourself that way, or you find yourself as more of a strategic tact tactician and you identify yourself that way, I think... You know, it's really important that you look at the other side and say, well, what can I gain from this other thinking style? And in closing here, I want to leave you with one question that I have. This is a question that I don't think I have the answer to, but I would love to know your thoughts here. Is the balance of the tactician and the artist, is it internal? Is it that you are born with a leaning in one direction or the other? Maybe you're born an artist, let's say. And is the balance that you should attempt to tap in to the more strategic side of your personality and draw yourself toward the middle to balance these two sides of the spectrum? Is it internal and within you? Or is the balance external? Is it that the earth, the population of humanity, seems to be relatively split down the middle and we have artists and we have tacticians and those people just need to learn how to get along and that is the balance. I think when we're talking about the artist and the tactician getting along, I think the best example for that would be something like a business because on the front end of a business where you have um, people creating like the front end of a website, you have your customer service people. These are your creative artist types for sure. But when it comes to um, ops management and logistic solutions in the warehouse, these are your tacticians, right? And so a successful business very much operates with the artistic side of the spectrum and the logistic um, strategic side of the spectrum operating within the same building. So to me, that would be external. You're not trying to change the artist and make them more tactical. You're not trying to take the strategist and make them more creative. Um, instead, it is just a, a pairing or a union of these two people. But the other way you could approach this is to say, you know, I want to make that balance or create that balance within myself internally. So the artist would make an attempt to be more strategic and the strategist would make an attempt to be more empathetic, emotional, and creative. I don't know how I feel about this. I think it's, uh, it's something that could be very, very personal. But in my experience... I started as an artist and I found that balance for me to be internal, to slowly shift myself towards the strategic side of the spectrum. And how I would describe myself now is 
honestly right down the middle in a lot of ways. And so that leads us to this Myers-Briggs test because hopefully by you know, identifying myself through this psychological profiler test. Uh, you know, I'm not gonna put myself in a box and say that every word about my personality type according to that test is accurate, but hopefully it can demonstrate how I have managed to strike this balance of being a, a business-minded entrepreneurial person, uh, but also maintaining a high level of creativity because I'm, I'm creative every single day. It's just a part of who I am as well. So with all of that said, let's take this test. All right, so we are on 16personalities.com, 16personalities. Uh, let's do this. You enjoy vibrant social events with lots of people. I'm gonna go almost, yeah, I'm gonna go close to strong disagree there. I am not that social of a person. Uh, I just get stressed from super large, large events. I enjoy it in really small doses. That's why I'm not going all the way to that end of the spectrum. Uh, you often spend time exploring unrealistic yet intriguing ideas. I'm gonna go down the middle because unrealistic ideas appeal to me far less, far, far less. Like um, politics, for example, you know, it's fun talking about alternative political strategies. So let's say like um, an extreme one, like anarchy. It's fun to talk about, but I also don't envision that working in a lot of contexts. So it's less interesting than a real solution that I could see happening. So um, I'm gonna go, not quite all the way to disagree, but pretty close. Uh, your travel plans are more likely to look like a rough list of ideas than a detailed itinerary. Agreed, agreed. I'm not a, uh, I'd rather improvise on a vacation. You often think about what you should have said in a conversation long after it has taken place. Yes, and normally in like a debate context, like it would have, I could have illustrated my point better if I said it this way. I'll do that with lessons if I make like a drum lesson and like a year later I watch it back. I'm like, oh, I should have mentioned that. That would have like sold the idea a little bit better. So yeah, I do that fairly often. Uh, if your friend is sad about something, your first instinct is to support them emotionally, not to try and solve their problem. Absolutely not. My instinct is to solve the problem. I get a little weird when people come approach me with something that's like hyper emotional. Even drummers who come, like musicians do this all the time about like, I just don't feel like, like uh, it, my instinct is like a handle your shit kind of thing, right? Like, do you want me to solve the problem or did you want me to, like, I'm not your mom, right? That's sort of where I fall naturally. So I'm gonna go strong disagree. People can rarely upset you. Um, yeah, I'm gonna go almost all the way agree. I certainly could be upset by something somebody said, but, um, being a YouTuber will do that to you as well. Like, how many times can you be called a fag before you just end up like, all right, well, you know, it, it makes you it makes you a little bit more thick skinned. So I think my um, environment may have fostered that a little bit more. But yeah, I'm gonna go strong, pretty strong. Agree on rarely get upset by people. Let's keep moving. Um, you can often rely on other people to be the ones to start a conversation. You often rely on people, huh? Rely on other people to start a conversation and keep it going. Um, I'm just gonna go down the middle. I could go either way. I could go either way. I really don't care for like small talk that much, but like I could start a conversation if I had to. I don't really rely on them. So down the middle. If you have to temporarily put your plans on hold, you make sure it is your top priority to get back on track as soon as possible. Pretty strong agree. I tend to be a little bit more improvised in my work weeks. But yeah, I don't like getting 
Well, you know what? I'm going to bump that up one more. Yeah, I get pretty pissed off if I have to like rearrange a plan that I had. Um, I don't like that. It is like top priority to get very rare that I'll like abandon a project. If I start a project, like I'm going to finish it. So pretty strong agree. You rarely worry if you made a good impression on someone you met. Yeah, pretty strong agree. I don't really care if a new person likes me or not necessarily. They'd have to be some like very important person for me to get to know, for example. Um, but if you don't like me, you don't like me. I don't really feel like I can change your mind necessarily. I'm not interested in changing your mind. Um, it would be a challenge for you to spend the whole weekend all by yourself without feeling bored. No, that is a perfect weekend for me. You are more of a detail-oriented person than a big-picture person. No, I feel very, very capable of being both of those at the same time. I'm going to have to shoot down the middle on that. You're very affectionate with people that you care about. Uh, yes, and I don't know why, but I've always had... I've always had like an attraction to trying to be more affectionate, right? Like trying to be more um, the kind of person who gives compliments and speaks up because I've always noticed that when people behave that way, someone who is very affectionate or, or just um, very vocal about the things that they like about you, they're very complimentary. That tends to be a universally attractive thing. Everybody kind of likes that in other people. So I've tried to be that person in, in many ways, to be very complimentary, very affectionate. Um, so yeah. You have a careful and methodical approach to life. Not entirely. It's, it's really context. I think I have to shoot down the middle on that one. Uh, I could go either way depending on what the goal is, right? You are still bothered by the mistakes you made a long time ago. No, not at all. Not at all. Used to be. Used to be growing up. But as I've gotten older, no. I just tend to, to let shit go. Got better at doing that. Um, at parties and similar events, you can mostly be found farther away from the action. Yeah, almost totally agree. I'd rather be off on the porch talking with like one or two people. That's where you would find me not telling jokes in a circle with a bunch of people. Um, I tend to, yeah, I'm just averse to that sort of social situation. You often find it difficult to relate to people who let their emotions guide them. Yes, strongly agree, strongly agree. And in many ways, I wish I could be more empathetic. I think it would make me a better teacher in certain scenarios. But I think one of the things that also makes me a good teacher is that um, I don't allow other people to be guided by their emotions, at least in my lesson room, right, or in my videos. How you feel is somewhat irrelevant if you want to solve this problem or acquire this skill or invest in this craft. Um, let's keep moving. When looking for a movie to watch, you can spend ages browsing the catalog. No. This is something me and my fiance Kelly fight about a lot. She can spend 30 minutes looking for something to watch, and at a certain point, I just flip after like six minutes. I'm like, who fucking cares? Pick anything and just play it on the TV. I'm not wait like, I'm not wasting my time in the menu. Like the point was to put on something to be entertained. I'd rather be less entertained by something I don't love than not entertained at all for like another 30 seconds, right? So, <laughs> so no, I'm gonna go pretty strong disagree on the browsing. You can stay calm under a lot of pressure. Uh, yes, not a tremendous amount of pressure, so I'm gonna go right there. Let's keep going. When in a group of people you do not know, you have no problem jumping right into their conversation. Not so, I mean, yeah, I don't really have a problem jumping into the conversation. Would I is the question. I probably wouldn't, but I don't have an issue doing it. So I'll go a little towards the agree side. When you sleep, your dreams tend to be bizarre and fantastical. No, not really. 
but I have had wild ass dreams, so I'll go I'll fairly disagree. Um, in your opinion, is it sometimes okay to step on others to get ahead in life? Well, context matters. Sometimes, I mean, it kind of depends on the context, but like, I don't disagree with the premise necessarily that sometimes um, you have to come first, your family has to come first, right? Um, that should never be your goal and it should always be considered whether or not you might be hurting someone to get something that, that you want or that you need. Um, I'm going to go, okay, to step on those to get ahead in life. That feels like it's painted so ethically black and white. Like, are you a shitty person or are you not a shitty person? Um, I'm just going to go slightly agree because I kind of sort of, I could think of some scenarios where that would be okay. Though predominantly it wouldn't be. You are dedicated and focused on your goals, only rarely getting sidetracked. Yeah, I'm going to go towards the agree side on that. Um, I do get sidetracked from time to time, but it's not not very often. I tend to be a little bit more stubborn when it comes to uh, projects and work, things like that. If you make a mistake, you tend to start doubting yourself, your abilities, and your knowledge. No, I do not do that at all. Uh, when at a social event, you rarely try to introduce yourself to new people and mostly talk to the ones you already know. Yup, yup, not. New conversations are harder. They take more, they take a lot more work. And investing in a new friendship or a new relationship, it is worthwhile. But for an introvert, it's a that's a big ask. It's a tall order to say, like, can you invest in a new friendship? It's like, oh my God, it's so much work. And I already know people. Like, I already have some friends where it's it's much more effortless because we've put in the years to get to know each other. So that ends up being a lot more appealing to me. You usually you usually usually lose interest in a discussion when it gets philosophical. Absolutely not. I tend to be the guy that steers things in the philosophical direction and pulls conversations out to a much wider perspective most of the time, so that is a strong disagree. You would never let yourself cry in front of others. Nope, I cried on the last podcast we did, so um, yeah, pretty strong disagree. I also believe that that maintaining emotional stability is a skill set, um, so I wouldn't go the strongest disagree necessarily, but you feel more drawn to places with a bustling and busy atmosphere than to more quiet and intimate ones. No, I've, I'm going to go strong disagree. Like New York City, like it's fun to go there. I've been there a few times, but I had this feeling when I like get off of the plane or get out of the Uber where it's like, whoa, this is cool, but I would never fucking live here. I could never be in a place of that high energy at all. It's like void of peace in my mind, right? Uh, you like discussing different views and theories in, on what the world could look like in the future. Absolutely. Strongest degree. Uh, when it comes to making life-changing choices, you mostly listen to your heart rather than your head. Almost full disagree. You know, I've gotten better at that, tapping into a little bit more of like um, letting emotions be the compass sometimes in some scenarios or at least giving value to some of the more emotional ways of thinking. Um, but yeah, for the most part, nah, you can imagine yourself dedicating your life to the study of something that you cannot see, touch, or experience. So this one is an ironic one for me because I'm a musician and I guess you can experience music. It's a little bit harder 
to see and touch. I mean, you're getting into like the weeds on like, you know, sensory stuff. But for the most part, like, I find it weird when people study like theoretical physics on like stuff in space that's way too far away. There's an element of me that's sort of like, like, but you don't fucking know. Like, you haven't been there. Like, this is a, a really abstract thing to become obsessed over, right? As is philosophy, but you can implement philosophy in your life as well. So that's that's of interest to me. A lot more than, like, deep space, for example. So I really can't imagine myself dedicating my life to the study of something I can't. So I'm going to go pretty strong disagree on that. Um... Do, do, do. You usually prefer to get your revenge rather than forgive. My instinct would be revenge. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have learned to be more forgiving, but like my guttural reaction, my natural state would be like, oh, like you shouldn't have fucking done that. <laughs> you know, that sort of reaction. Not that I would act that way. Um, yeah, so I'm going to go like a light agree on that. You often make decisions on a whim. No, almost hard disagree. I'm like a heavy planner, thinker. Um, I'll get obsessed with something and research it for like a month before I take any action at all. The time you spend by yourself often ends up being more interesting and satisfying than the time you spend with other people. Yes, hardest degree by a long shot. You often put special effort into interpreting the real meaning or the message of a song or movie. Yep. Um, to my detriment sometimes, it makes it difficult to enjoy a show or a movie or a song if I think that there was a political agenda involved, if there was a secondary meaning, they're trying to sneak something past me. I get a little bit skeptical of things like that. And part of that is being a creative person, right? Because you know the creative process, especially when it comes to like modern media type stuff. So I get very skeptical um, at times when it, when it comes to taking things at like face value, like a Netflix show or a song on the radio. Like a lot of times I always think, well, not always, but there are times when I think like they're trying to do something here, aren't they? They're trying the commercial is trying to sell me. There's a marketing tactic. There's a, a psychological ploy that someone is implementing here. So, yeah, special effort into interpreting the real meaning. Strong agree. You always know exactly what you want. For the most part, I tend to be pretty decisive with things that I want. You rarely think back on the choices you made and wonder if you could have done it differently. That is pretty rare. For me, I mean, I do that with the stock market, but like, who doesn't play that game? Like, if I only knew. Um, you rarely think back on the choices you've made. Yeah, it's pretty rare, though. I'll go kind of strong agree. When in a public place, you usually stick to quieter and less crowded areas. Yep, strong agree. You tend to focus on present realities rather than future possibilities. I do both of those. Yeah, both of those, down the middle. You often have a hard time understanding other people's feelings. Pretty strong, agree. When starting to work on a project, you prefer to make as many decisions up front as possible. Yeah, this is always a tricky one. Depends on the project, but I would tend to lean towards yes, but not all the time. There's some stuff you, you wanna leave some doors and windows open to amend your project. Uh, when you know someone thinks highly of you, you also wonder how long it will be until they become disappointed in you. No, I never have a thought along those lines. You feel comfortable just waking up to someone you find interesting. Sorry, you feel comfortable comfortable just walking up to someone you find interesting and striking up a conversation. No, I wouldn't feel very comfortable doing that. 
I wouldn't like that. That would be weird. So why I wouldn't want to do that to somebody. You often drift away into daydreaming about various ideas or scenarios. Yes, I do that pretty often. Um, you look after yourself first and others come in second. Yep, that is a fundamental part of my philosophy. Even when you have a planned or particular daily routine, you usually just end up doing what you feel like at any given moment. This is like the epitome of my person or my work days. I'm gonna say my whole personality, but yeah, for sure. No matter what the plan was, if I don't feel like doing it when it comes time to do it, the artist in me flares up and I will not fucking do it. Um, that said, I'll do something else of value. I'll solve another problem, right? I don't, it doesn't mean I'm just going to like sit on the couch and smoke a bowl, but I'm definitely, uh, yeah, I'm definitely sort of at the whim of where I'm at in the moment. Sometimes it's a bit of an artistic characteristic I have. Um, your mood can change very quickly. No, I feel pretty stable, like mood wise diet and exercise has so much to do with that for me as well. Like adhering to the diet that I'm on. And making sure that I that I exercise regularly is like a huge factor in keeping a stable mood, in my personal experience. Um, you often contemplate the reasons for human existence and the meaning of life all the goddamn time. Strong agree. You often talk about your own feelings and emotions. I do. I'm very vocal about my feelings and emotions. It, and for me, talking them out... It might be like an educator thing. It's part of processing them. Part of processing how I feel about something is discussing it, um, or at least discussing it even internally, right? Like my own monologue. So, yes, talk about feelings and emotions. Do that all the time. You've got a detailed education or career development plan stretching several years into the future. No, not really. I'm going to go light disagree. You rarely dwell on your regrets. Strong agree. Spending time in a dynamic atmosphere with lots of people around quickly makes you feel drained and in need of a getaway. Absolutely, absolutely it does. Strong agree. You see yourself as more of a realist than a visionary. Not completely agree because you got to have some sort of vision or a premonition for the future, what you want. So I do have like more lofty goals and thoughts at times, but... Again, if it's not tied into reality, I'm not that interested. If it's too lofty of an idea that I can't actually see it happening, it's off the table for me. So almost all the way agree. You find it easy to empathize with a person who has gone through something you never have. No, I don't. To my detriment, possibly. Your personal work style is closer to spontaneous bursts of energy than organized and consistent efforts. Yep. Yeah, I'm a I'm a sprinter. I'm a sprinter. That's how that's how I tend to work. I will go very hard for 2 or 3 hours and be extremely efficient, extremely focused, extremely dialed in. And then I'm done for the day. That's very oftentimes how I work. When I say done for the day, I mean I'm done with the burst of creativity. So that would be like writing a script or recording something on the drums or, you know, it, it's very oftentimes done in bursts and I'll do the bursts space throughout the day. I don't want to say I'm done for the day. That's probably not totally true. Um, but yeah, when, when it comes to like really intensely working, it's definitely like a huge peak and then it sort of slows down and sort of balances out. I told people before, like I prefer to work a 16 hour day that's like an hour on, hour off, hour on, hour off. And at the end of the day, I, might, I maybe only pulled eight hours, but I spread it over my entire day. It's almost like a lifestyle sort of approach to working. Um, 
Yeah, but but I do best when I sprint. I'm not good at the slow jog all day. I just burn out that way. It's it's too monotonous for me. Your personal okay, same question. Uh, yes, hard agree. Your emotions control you more than you control them. Strong disagree. That is not how I work. After a long and exhausting week, a fun party is just what you need. Absolutely not. That would make the week ten times more exhausting. You frequently find yourself wondering how technological advancement could change everyday life. Yes. Um, technological philosophy is like one of my huge passions. We're going to do a whole episode on that in the future. So yeah, that particular question is really relevant to me. I think about that all the time. You always consider how your actions might affect other people before doing something. Kind of, sort of. It just depends. You know, the lone wolf thing doesn't always doesn't always set you up to do that. So I'm going to go straight down the middle. You still honor the commitments you made even if you have a change of heart. Yes, for sure. For sure. I think if you if you are unloyal in a situation like you you're painting a picture for the future. Like why would somebody trust you again if you didn't hold up the deal the first time that this happened, right? It's sort of like how you behave in a in a very small scenario is representative of how you might behave in a much more complex scenario. So yeah, you rarely feel insecure. I do, I rarely feel insecure, but I'm a human. I'm going not all the way agree. I am a male and let's see some results. Do-do-do. Architect, I-N-T-J-A. So, Let's just read exactly what this is. I've taken this test before. I always get architect, obviously. but um, So I am pretty deeply introverted. We'll just scroll down this list here. 86% introverted, which is pretty far on that spectrum. Um, energy, I'm a... What yeah, intuitive versus observant is a little harder for me to quantify. Um, I don't n- totally understand that. Uh, I tend to think more than I feel. Even my feelings, I tend to think them through before I allow myself to feel them or before I identify with that emotion. So before I were to say I'm angry, I will have thought about whether or not I can justify being angry. And if I can, then I'll I'll allow myself to be angry if I've rationalized the emotion first. Otherwise, you wouldn't see that emotion come out of me. Hopefully that makes sense. Tactics, um, fairly balanced on that. Identity, Assertive versus turbulent. The way I understand assertive versus turbulent, like the A and the T that goes on the end of this four-letter combination, uh, this one is INTJ-A. A A is the assertive version and T is the turbulent version. And I I perceive this as to be like the confident version of your personality versus the more like depressive version of your personality. So I tend to lean towards that more, um, the the confident side. So let's... uh, let me read some of these first paragraphs here because this is what first sold me on this, this Myers-Briggs test. Like, very like, holy shit, this is accurate. It can be lonely at the top. <laughs> As one of the rarest personality types and one of the most capable, architects, INTJs, uh, know this all too well. Rational and quick-witted, architects may struggle to find people who can keep up with their nonstop analysis of everything around them. And that strikes me as true because some of the times in the mornings when my fiance and I are having coffee... I will launch into philosophy and she'll have to tell me like, hey, we've been awake for like nine minutes and you need to shut the fuck up because this is way too much. There's way too much going on here, you know, for for to be this early in the morning. And so I tend to do that to people a lot. I, I hit them with heavy concepts that are not 
necessarily appropriate at the time. Um, so yeah, struggle to find people who can keep up with the nonstop analysis of everything. That is very, very true. I get along a lot better with people who have no problem diving very deeply into a heavy conceptual conversation. That tends to be a lot, uh, a lot more natural of a flow for me when it comes to conversations and friendships. Um, thirst for knowledge. These personalities can be both the boldest of dreamers and the bitterest of pessimists. Yeah. Um, architects believe that through willpower and intelligence, they can achieve even the most challenging of goals, but they may be cynical about human nature more generally, assuming that most people are lazy, unimaginative, or simply doomed to mediocrity. That's fucking savage. I mean, sometimes I can go there. Yeah. Um, architects derive much of their self-esteem from their knowledge and mental acuity, which is very true for me. I am what I know in a lot of ways. In school, people with this personality type may have been called bookworms or nerds, but rather than taking these labels as insults, many architects embrace them. See, in school, for me, that was not the case. I was very averse to like a classroom environment. I hated the structured learning setup. I wanted to be more creative, much more of an artist as a kid. I was not a nerd, not a bookworm. I was the kid who wouldn't read the summer reading book and just tell the teacher on day one, like, I didn't read it. And they go, why didn't you read it? We gave it to you three months ago. I didn't want to read it. I don't care. Like that, I was just like defiant in a lot of ways. Let's see. Finding a better way. This particular paragraph I remember being pretty striking. Architects question everything. Real quick, my favorite phrase about the INTJ personality is um, infinite philosophical tire kickers. That is me to a T. I will kick the shit out of the tires of any philosophy, any idea, um, whether political or economic or emotional or psychological like I want to I want to go all the way around this bitch and understand it from every single angle I want to know all of the counter arguments um, and only then could I decide how I feel about a certain philosophy or a topic a suggestion or a strategy uh, architects question everything many personality types trust the status quo relying on conventional wisdom and other people's expertise as they go about their lives but ever skeptical architects prefer to make their own discoveries in their quest to find better ways of doing things. They aren't afraid to break the rules of or risk disapproval. In fact, they rather enjoy it. Absolutely. That's a little bit more true to who I was um, as a young kid. But as anyone with this personality type would tell you, a new idea isn't worth anything unless it actually works. Architects want to be successful, not just inventive. They bring a success they bring a single-minded drive to their passion projects, applying the full force of their insight, logic, and willpower. And heaven help anyone who tries to slow them down by enforcing pointless rules or offering poorly thought-out criticism. God damn, that is so on the money. So on the money. Um, one thing that I, I'm willing to like go to war for is if someone comes at me with a poorly thought-out idea. So for example, if somebody has a business suggestion or a, or a philosophical idea that sounds not thought out, I have an affinity for attempting to tear that idea to shreds. That's, what, that's where I naturally go. Because if I've thought this out and I know the counter argument and I know the philosophical wormhole to go down to lead to a certain conclusion and somebody makes a statement that, that implies that they have not done that same work, I feel very compelled to challenge that idea and not to prove myself, but to defend the logic 
and to defend the idea in of itself because I have put in the work to understand what this is and if another person hasn't, man, that makes me go into like a debate mode very, very quickly. Uh, Let's go to social frustrations. Architects aren't known for being warm and fuzzy. They tend to prioritize rationality and success over politeness and pleasantries. In other words, they'd rather be right than popular. And that is absolutely true for me. Uh, This may explain why so many fictional villains are modeled on this personality type. Fictional villain, good God. Because architects value truth and depth, many common social practices, from small talk to white lies, may seem pointless or downright stupid to them. Yep, Um, small talk drives me crazy, drives me crazy. It feels so pointless. I'd rather not have a conversation than have one about the weather. Beautiful sunny day out here. What do you think about last week? Fuck all this. Who cares? Who cares? We're, we are literally wasting time. I don't feel any different after this conversation. We could have a conversation that makes us feel different, that makes us learn something about each other, about the world. We could share ideas. We could grow. Or we can talk about fucking cars. Like, you know, <laughs> not that I can't talk about cars, but um, yeah, like the value of a conversation is very important to me. If it's a low value conversation, I am not interested in continuing that conversation. So as a result of this, um, architects may inadvertently come across as rude or even offensive when they're only trying to be honest. At times, architects may wonder if dealing with other people is even worth the frustration. Yep. Uh, But like any personality type, architects do crave social interaction. They just prefer to surround themselves with people who share their values and priorities. Often they can achieve this just by being themselves. When architects pursue their interest, their natural confidence can draw people to them, professionally, socially, and even romantically. And I found this to be true and got more comfortable with this as I've gotten older. Um, Being myself is the best way to attract friendships that are actually meaningful. And trying to impress people tends to attract people that I don't even fucking like. So let's see, I don't wanna read all of this. It's a lot and you can certainly look this up. Uh, let's go strengths and weaknesses. I wanna do some, do some weaknesses. What do I suck at? Weaknesses. Arrogant. Architects might be knowledgeable, but they're not infallible. Their self-assurance can blind them to useful input from other people, especially anyone they deem to be intellectually inferior. Their persona- These personalities can also become needlessly harsh or single-minded when trying to prove others wrong. That stubbornness is something that has been present in me from a very, very young age. My mom would tell you that I was very stubborn the moment I started to develop a personality. Um, and balancing that out has definitely been something I've, I've always, I don't want to say struggled with, but it's always required effort for me. Um, there have been times in my life where I was so narrow-minded that I could not hear something very obvious. You know, I'll give you a weird example of this. This is the most, obvi- this is the most obvious way this has ever happened that I can think of. When I went to rehab, when I got there, there were many, many other people there, all, mostly all men, who, who were... They had been there for a while, so they were really comfortable. I was a little uncomfortable. I don't know these people, I don't know this place, I'm a little skeptical of this process. The comfort that these other guys had who had been there for a few months at a time, or for a few months in a row, you know, they were joking around. So they're making jokes about like, I don't know, like telling sex stories, and they're just really like lighthearted, and it's rehab, so this is a bunch of extreme, it's like vulgar as shit, the whole thing, you know, there's war stories is a common thing, so you're hearing heroin addicts talk about shooting dope, you know, there's a lot of that, and the vulgar, but like also like lackadaisical nature of a lot of that, you know, it sort of turned me off a little bit initially, 
I thought, you know, I'm here to save my life and these people are here like to play fucking games. That was like how it, I perceived it. And, you know, I remember trying in the first week of rehab to get transferred out to another part of the rehab facility or to another rehab altogether. And I remember all of my counselors and all of the guys that were there, everybody collectively had the same message. They said, listen, man, your brain is trying to get you the hell out of this situation. You might not realize it, but the addict in you is taking a swing at all of this because this is deeply uncomfortable. It's supposed to be deeply uncomfortable. And you're finding reasons to rationalize why you don't need to be here for some reason, but that's bullshit. And you'll learn that it's bullshit if you can stick this out. And after three months of being in rehab, they were right. They were 100% right. My brain was looking for a way to rationalize why I'm better than this situation, why I don't deserve to be here. I could get something better. Um, and I was I was hunting for that rationale. And I was so close-minded at the time. I was also deep in the pits of fucking alcoholism. But I was so close-minded at the time that, you know, people who were emotionally more mature than me, a little bit more intellectual than me when it came to understanding addiction psychology. I was totally unwilling to listen to them at the time. And so that's, that's a really good example of like how that personality trait has sort of come back to bite me. Um, overly critical, yeah, I can do that. Um, Kelly's good at balancing this out. She's a lot a lot less critical than I am. I'll criticize a, a show, a song, a thing, and she'll have to remind me like, hey, people look at the world different than you. People can do this. People can do that. I'm like, I fucking know. I know. Um, combative. Yes. Yes. I'm going to read this one. <laughs> Architects hate blindly following anything without understanding why. Absolutely. Philosophical tire kicker. This includes restrictions and authority figures who impose them. People with this personality type can get caught up in arguing about useless rules and regulations, but sometimes these battles are distractions for more important matters. Yes, absolutely, that's me. It's one of the reasons I am not suited for what you would call a normal job. I don't think I will ever have a boss from now until the day I die that is off the table. Romantically clueless. I don't know about this one. Architects... Uh, relentless rationality can lead them to be frustrated by romance, especially in the early stages of a relationship. They may struggle to understand what's going on and how to behave. If the relationships fall apart for reasons they don't understand, they can become cynical about matters of the heart, even questioning the importance of love and connection. Kind of, sort of. Um, I've been guilty of this when I was young in relationships because you do a lot of stupid shit when you're really young and you get into like semi-long-term relationships. But I also think I had a a very a very good mom that helped me navigate a lot of the romantic waters a little bit better, giving me advice from a woman's perspective growing up. And um, so, yeah, I feel like that doesn't fully apply, but I've definitely done some stupid shit in relationships. You go back far enough. So, yeah, we can keep going. If you want to learn more about this, you can certainly just go type in INTJA or architect. You can read all about it if you care to. Maybe you're an architect. I have no fucking idea. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, as you read through there, there's a lot of implications that creative problem solving and artistic entrepreneurship tend to fall in line with my personality type, at least according to the Myers-Briggs profiler. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I feel like I have this unfair advantage when it comes to being a creative person while also maintaining 
uh, a lot of strategy and a lot of tact in my life. And I've, I've definitely gotten better at this as I've gotten older, but I also feel quite capable of expressing this spectrum to people because I feel like I, I am a good example of, of how to maintain that balance. I don't think I'm perfect. I think sometimes I can be way too much of a tactician and I definitely have many years of my life where I was way too much of an artist. So maybe I'm not the best person to talk about this, but at least in my opinion, I feel very balanced when it comes to this concept and, and the INTJ profile as it's presented from the Myers-Briggs test. You know, it, it sort of it sort of lets me know where I fall and how I'm capable of maintaining that balance between the two. So yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed this podcast. I really appreciate you hanging out with me. And um, yeah, up next, we're gonna do more than likely, I'm not sold on it, but but I'm working on um, episode three is gonna be around some political fundamentals, nonpartisan ideas that you can apply to your uh, political life, your political walk. And hopefully we can talk through some ideas that will be helpful no matter where you fall on the political spectrum. So I'm working on that one. If it's not next, then it'll be it'll come out down the road. So yeah, it's a good one. Thank you so much for watching, guys. Adam here. This has been All In with Adam, episode two. And I will catch you in the next one. Later.